that rather long introduction in mind, this is what God says in chapter 3. If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and no spring rains have fallen. Yet you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush for shame. Have you not just called to me? My father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. During the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, declares the Lord. The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel is more righteous than unfaithful Judah. Go, proclaim this message towards the north. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days, when your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It will never enter their minds or be remem remembered. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. No longer will they follow their own stubbornness of their evil hearts. In those days, the people of Judah will join the people of Israel, and together they will come from a northern land to the land I gave your ancestors as an inheritance. May God bless the reading of his word. Hopefully, even in just the reading that, you can already see some of those big themes coming out here. Idolatry imaged as adultery the breaking of covenant vows and their consequences, the call for repentance and what God wants for them. What we're going to see is how that brings about man's need and God's plan. That's man's need and God's plan. And that's what we're going to have in our minds as we journey through Jeremiah here. But let's start together with our case study in verse 1. 
So far in Jeremiah, God has been showing how his people have left his ways, have ignored him, have rebelled against him, all the while saying that they were innocent, that they were righteous. And so when God justly withholds covenant blessings, the people cry out against God saying that they are in the right and that he is in the wrong. So what's happened is that they've received discipline, but, but rather than coming back to God in repentance, they come back wanting the covenantal blessings without the covenantal commitments. And so now in verses 1 to 5, Jeremiah brings us to the law courts. And what he does is, is reference Deuteronomy. He references where what we were doing in the mornings where, where God presented the people with a choice of life or death and then sh shows them how they have chosen death. And as he lays out what they have done, remember that adultery equals idolatry to see the extent of their sin. Verse one, you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Verse two, is there a place where you have not been ravished? Verse three, you have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Verse five, you do all the evil you can. Now, two quick points here. Firstly, our translation here has, has tried to soften the impact of, of some of the words there, maybe to try not to cause offense, but I actually don't think it's that helpful. Because for us in our context, maybe a, a prostitute conjures up the images of someone having been exploited or forced into it or left with no option. I hope that if you were to meet someone involved in the sex trade, that's where your heart would go anyway. But the words and images that are used here aren't like that. Rather, it's about someone who has options, who is in control, but simply desires evil. Other translations render phrases like committing adultery and prostitute, as we have here. They render it as playing the whore. So verse three could read, you have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Jeremiah isn't trying to get us to, to pity these people as victims, but seeing them as having freely chosen this rather than staying faithful to God. And he wants us to view that as a really grave sin. That's not only idolatry specifically, but we can see their hypocrisy as well. Verse four, the people say, my father, my friend from my youth, will you always be angry with me? Which kind of seems like they're repenting. But as verse five says, they talk like that, but their hearts haven't changed. This is an image of a definite turning towards evil, not out of need, but out of desire. That's what God is bringing to light about his people here, that they have turned from him and have chosen other gods, calling evil good and, and good evil. And if you read through Jeremiah, you will see these moments of judgment. They're, they're not few and far between. It's not that Israel is getting a bit of a, a slap on the wrist here. This is really serious stuff. And it continues into verse six. During the reign of King Josiah, that, that's, that's the king of Judah in the southern kingdom, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done to the northern kingdom? And so if we aren't too familiar with the political scene, it, it can be easy to brush over this. But what is happening is that God's people have been divided into these two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom of Israel broke the covenant and so were carried off into exile. I remember that the Abrahamic covenant that we're talking about here is about land, seed, and, and blessing. 
for those who follow God. And the reverse is true for those who break those commandments. So the northern kingdom initially broke the covenant and saw the curses come with invading armies and, and loss of land and by extension, seed and blessing. And now what God is saying to the southern kingdom is, is look, look at what happens to those who, cho who chose death. That is life outside the covenant. Do you really want that? And again, between verses six and nine, we get this vivid description of how the people chose to break the covenant and seek after idols. This time with the added insult of Judah following the same path as Israel, even though they could see what it would mean. Do we see that in verse eight? I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. So the southern kingdom of Judah had the example and the warning of Israel, but chose the same path anyway. So that's why verse 11 seems to say that Israel's more righteous than Judah, not, not because they did different things, but simply because Judah had this additional warning that they weren't listening to. Instead of repenting, they valued other things more highly than God. They served other things, other gods, and rather than being identified as the people of God, they became people of their own desires. So this is man's state before God, and it's one of the big pillars that, that can help us understand what is going on in Jeremiah. Because we have to really understand as we read through that God's judgment here is a righteous judgment. We have to look on at what is going on with the people of God and be appalled at what they're doing, how they are seeking after other gods, how they are offering half-hearted devotion to God. Their hypocrisy and their lack of piety should strike us as deadly serious. Unless we understand this theme of, of turning away from God and, and open our eyes to just how serious that is, then we will read Jeremiah like a, like a history book or a mystery and not see how it so strongly relates to us. Because the devastating reality is that this is not something that's used to just describe Israel and Judah, but me and you. Maybe you've been coasting in your faith recently. Maybe you do see yourself as righteous and, and, and a pretty good person. Go away and read these verses. Insert your name in the place of the faithless people. Then you will see how holy you truly are apart from Christ. The first big pillar, the, the first interpretive lens is that man needs saving. That we are not righteous and that we deserve the curses and the judgments that come our way. Wherever you are in Jeremiah, keep that in mind. But we should note as well that Jeremiah's calling in chapter one isn't just a, just a tear down and uproot. It also is this element of, of planting and, and of building up. This is what God says in reaction to our state of idolatry. Or to use Jeremiah's language, this is what God says in reaction to our state of whoredom. Verse 14. Return, faithless people, declares the Lord. For I am your husband, I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. So think about this for a second. Think about the state of utter sin that has been pictured here. 
Think of how outrageous it would be for a holy God to have anything to do with that terrible depravity. And yet in the face of it all, God says, return, come back to me. And not because they are in some way good, because as he says, return to me, faithless people. I've had so many conversations over the years where people say something like, I'd like to go back to church, but, but I have to get my life sorted first. To which God says, no, don't wait for that. Don't, don't, don't try that. It's not going to work. Return to me, faithless people. Return to me as you are. I will frown on you no longer. I will not be angry forever. Just repent. Acknowledge your guilt and return to me. Maybe some of us out there know those kind of people. Maybe, maybe some of us are those kind of people. And seeing your life echoed back in Jeremiah will help you to grasp the freeing truth that you can't clean yourself up. Just come back to God. You don't have to earn your way back in because God hasn't broken the covenant. Do you see what he says here? I am your husband. By this point, I don't know about you, but it doesn't look like there's much of a marriage left with the people having torn up the covenant so spectacularly. And yet that is how God identifies himself, with covenantal language. Even as we are faithless, he remains faithful. When we read the judgments in Jeremiah, we, we, we have to always understand they're part of a covenant that has already been established. This is God speaking to his people. And if we get that, then we will see that even when people seem so wicked, God remains good. It's so easy to think that if, if things are going badly or if we are being disciplined, it's, it's because God is not in our side. And yet scripture tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves and it's ultimately for our good. So holding tightly onto this covenant as we read through will embed in us that crucial understanding that we don't relate to God based on our circumstances or our situation, but because of his covenant, because of his work. Even as Jeremiah moves through difficult circumstances and judgment seems everywhere, we have to read it knowing that God is faithful, that he has chosen his people and that he will complete the work that he started in them. So we need to be aware of God's character and how he is faithful. But we also need to see how that faithfulness affects his plans. Judgment is coming and, and will have a concrete effect on the people. But that isn't the ultimate end of what God is doing here. See in verse 14, where, where God is going to bring the repentant? It's to Zion, to his holy mountain where he rules from his throne. Their return to the people is not as some second-class citizen. Their shame to be held over them and leveraged. No, that's not what's happening. It's a return to God's throne room, to community with him. And he goes on with more blessing. Verse 15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Verse 16, your numbers will greatly increase in the land. Which should remind us again there of land, seed, and blessing. Re-establishing the covenant as his people. This is the idea that they're being led into the promised land through covenant blessings and being in relationship with God again. And to such an extent that the holiest objects that they had, 
the symbol of God's presence with them, the thing that they followed, the thing that they looked to, the Ark of the Covenant would be so redundant that it wouldn't even enter their minds. This is an outrageous statement. The footstool of the creator on earth, forgotten. It's just some box. Because the creator himself will be so evidently with them. Not hidden behind a curtain, not obscured, not imaged, but there ruling on the throne before them. This is an image of unimaginable blessing, a signpost to what our ultimate home will be like. And glory upon glory, this blessing isn't just contained to Israel or to Judah, but we see in verse 17, all nations will gather to honor the name of the Lord. All nations. That means you and me, people in Africa, the Americas, Asia, people who have different cultural standpoints and traditions and outlooks, all dropping the labels and the chains of this world and looking to Christ for their salvation and receiving it. Being plucked from the gates of hell and brought into the family. God's plan, what he is revealing through Jeremiah to the people, is not one of ultimate and lasting curses, but a blessing beyond anything that they can imagine. God's disposition to us, uh, towards us as sinners, as his people who wander or backslide or struggle with some sin, but have been called and are truly his people, is a desire for us to come home, a faithfulness to what he has promised, and a readiness to bless us abundantly. Do you have that hope? Can you even imagine it? Paradise, perfection, complete satisfaction for your soul in relationship with your creator. This is the future that awaits us here in Christ. And it's here in Jeremiah, unity, peace, walking with God like they are back in Eden. And if we don't see that, if we don't hold on to that, then we will read Jeremiah like a depressing tome without relevance for our future or hope for our lives. But with this in mind, with that understanding, we will see how to rejoice in our sufferings because of the hope that is set before us. Now tell me that isn't worth the time and effort of reading slowly through this book. So there's the second pillar or the interpretive lens that we need to have to grapple with Jeremiah. God's plan for salvation and new creation. And if you can grasp those two pillars, then passages like this will not only become clearer in their context, but they will show you the kind of God that we worship and what that means for you. Because how many of us can honestly say that we have never backslidden our faith? That we've never had days when our passion for a devotional or our thoughts about God have been less than zealous? How many of us can honestly say that we have never put things above God? Worshipping them with our time or our money rather than worshipping Him? How many of us can plead purity and honestly say, that we have never played the whore. None of us. And if for even a second that you thought that didn't apply to you, then know that that is what, he, what the brazen look of a prostitute looks like in verse three. 
all of us, no matter what our lives might look like on the outside, either have fallen into this category, do fall into this category now, or will fall into this category in the future. It is the devastating, awful reality of sin in our lives, the powerful, insidious corruption of our hearts, that we are prone to wander, that we are to look to thing, other things other than God for our satisfaction. And yet, even as Jeremiah shows us what judgment we deserve for breaking the covenant with God, it shows us the ultimate purposes of God, which cannot be defeated, cannot be left undone, cannot fail to come to pass. That joy of knowing God, of seeing him face to face, is yours. If you're in Christ, then it is a certainty. You will rest in the house of the Lord. And maybe things about you are falling apart right now. And you just can't see that truth. Maybe you're in a difficult place mentally and the, and the darkness just seems so oppressive. And that, that, that thought doesn't even help. Maybe you're in the valley in the dark night of the soul. But no matter what it feels like now, this is certain. God will lift your face and you will be transformed into something more beautiful than you can imagine and experience more peace and joy than you knew possible. Man's need, God's plan, two unimaginably distant places, a gulf too great to span. And yet when we read it with that in mind, we can hear the echo of glory reverberating through the narrative. It's there in the beat of the poetry. Because when we see man's need in God's plan and somehow trust that, that, that we will end up here in God's plans and purpose for us, even if we are down here now, the gospel comes shining through. What else could bridge that gap? What else could solve this problem? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why you should invest your time and your energy reading slowly and carefully through Jeremiah, because it will show you the gospel. It will make you value Christ and all that he has done for you. It will shake you out of any apathy or, or cultural Christianity and help you see the hope that is set before you and the joy of what this gospel means. Jeremiah 33 says this. I'd love to read the whole thing, but for, for time, I'll just read a little. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout out of David's line. That's, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus coming. He will do what is just and right in the Lamb. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it, that's, that's the branch, will be called the Lord our righteous Savior. Jesus is our righteous Savior. It is Jesus who has made a way from our sinful need to our glorious future. And we will be so blessed to walk slowly along that line and to fall deeper and deeper into love and gratitude for what he has done. I am constantly blown away by my own need to remember that to have that truth pointed out to me again and again as I forget it. But it's when our hearts grow dim, when our passion burns low, 
that we need to be taken back to the gospel and confronted with all that God has done for us. And so as we move in a minute to to sing, don't just close your Bibles here. Don't just move on from this evening. But bring your need. Bring your gratitude, your awe at who God is and turn it to praise, knowing that your life is wholly bound to his. Jeremiah is a book that that tells us about man's state and about God's plan. And it leaves us in awesome wonder at our righteous Savior. So let's come together now and let's share in that wonder as we sing our final hymn.